1: And American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering.
0: How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false?
2: Fortress on a Hill aims to change that.
1: Uh, Good morning, listeners. Welcome to a new episode of Fortress on, on a Hill. Uh, we're here today with uh, Pam Campos Palma. Um, I hope I, I hope I pronounced uh, pronounced that correctly. Um, who is going to discuss with us the the case, the investigation, the reality of the murder of Vanessa um, It's a it's a hard subject, um, and but we the, we need to try to find some truth and in, in all in all of this bullshit. So, uh, Pam, welcome. Thank you for being with us today.
2: You said it perfectly, and I'm happy to be here.
1: <laughs> Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah. One of my pet peeves: is same people's names wrong.
2: Yeah. No worries.
1: Okay, so to start start off, we're going to. I want to give some some details about um, the case, just so everybody can be have a little bit of familiarity if they haven't been reading about it. Um, in late April of this year, um, Vanessa Guillen's unit uh, declared her missing, and They said that she was supposed to have gone from her arms room where she worked as an army armorer, somebody who works on weapons, on machine guns and stuff, to a different arms room for a different company, but in the same overall unit. I mean, not not the company, but the battalion brigade, you know, in in the big unit sense. Um, And then no one saw her again after that. She was supposed to show up at the motor pool to provide some serial numbers for... um, the stuff that she was working on, and she just did not show up. The biggest thing I'd like to point out from that time is that she left personal items of hers to include her wallet and her barracks room key in the arms room. Um, that's essentially leaving the key to her house, it, just leaving it behind. And it's, it's curious why uh, they didn't attempt to do something about that at the time. There also was no interview conducted immediately with um, whom we believe to be the killer, um, a Specialist Robinson. Um, but he should have been interviewed then um, as the person who last saw Vanessa. You know, even if she happened to disappear in a way that wasn't connected to Robinson, um, his statement, his an interview of him would have been very valuable. And it didn't happen right away. I think it happened six or seven days later. We then uh, move over to mid-May, there was huge delays in trying to find out information that's been a big ongoing issue with uh, Vanessa's family trying to question CID, the FBI, uh, Vanessa's chain of command about what's happening and receiving very little, if any, useful information. In mid-May, it came out that there were two witnesses to seeing Specialist Robinson carry a tough box from where he worked in his arms room out to his personal vehicle. They said that the box was very heavy, and but it didn't. That information didn't come out until mid-May, um, and something I plan to to poke at a little bit later. But you know, just for everybody going in, um, we then move a little bit further uh, towards the end of May, beginning of June, where cell phone records requested by CID and the FBI um, pinged Robinson and his girlfriend at a place outside Fort Hood. Uh, near the Leon River in, uh, in Texas. And ultimately, that was where her remains were found. And then lastly, um, once it was cleared, once, the, uh, once her remains were actually discovered, once they actually knew what they were dealing with, Specialist Robinson got confined to his barracks. He then ran away from the barracks, snuck past whatever people were, were guarding him, and then, when confronted by local law enforcement out in Colleen, outside of Fort Hood, he killed himself. There's a lot of other information about the case. So, listeners, if you're if you're looking more for more of the uh, standard kind of stuff, that's not really what we're going to be discussing today. Um, the The mainstream media coverage of this has been very. Uh, very stereotypical, you know, not asking many questions, not pointing out um, crucial things that needed to be noted about what happened to Vanessa and how the investigation has moved forward. Um, Pam, I'd like to give you uh, first uh, first dibs at this. Um, can you tell the listeners um, your impressions of what happened to Van- Vanessa and the uh, larger systemic issues that are involved in that?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I'll start off by saying that I think um, this, the, the realm of this issue, um, uh, military, you know, the the systemic issues of military sexual violence, corruption with impunity, I mean, these are, uh, repeatedly for me as an organizer in, in this field, this is one of the hardest um, realms to work in because one, it's so pervasive, but there's such a dichotomy between you know, many of us who served, this is not a surprise. Another, you know, case is, is just one in, in the pan of so many, um, over so many decades. But there's a clear rift where, you know, with this case, there was something that was, there was a few things that were different, I think. Um, Vanessa Guillen's family um, of Mexican descent, an immigrant family, um, was very loud. Um, from the second that she was disappeared and was very clear. Um, Vanessa Guillen's mother, Gloria Guillen, has been clear and the most clear throughout months around the fact that her daughter told her that she was being sexually harassed by a superior. And one thing that caught my eye very early on was that this was really lost because Gloria Guillen was only doing Spanish media interviews because she only speaks Spanish. Um, you know, it it has become now common knowledge that like so many of us, uh, Vanessa Guillen enlisted in the army to be able to um, grant her family citizenship. Um, And so it's the same story. Uh, You just kind of see the same story for many of us where the military is an outlet um, for upward mobility. um, There's corruption and impunity. And She's, you know, the hashtag I am Vanessa Guillen took off because I think we are in a reckoning moment in this country, tired of the hypocrisies, tired of the injustices and thousands on thousands of survivors um, from military sexual crimes uh, rang out um, and said no more. Right. Um, in a way that was also different. Another thing that Gloria Guillen did that was different is she did not treat um DOD, generals, commanders, with the blind allegiance and respectability politics that we usually see. In fact, she has said the opposite. Um, And increasingly, she has been very candid and open about the oppressive uh, engagements, the racism. Um, You know, most recently in DC, she said CID is lying, and they are the criminals. And so um, I think that there have been decades of um, missing and murdered, um, definitely women, but I think as we've seen with the um, cases coming out of Fort Hood, um, this has been pervasive. And you know, a good reminder, and the thing that I find so astonishing is that Fort Hood is um, among the largest and most resourced army installations in the United States. So one would think, and the biggest question that came up from the very beginning is how does a soldier go missing off of one of the most secure places, supposedly, um, on the face of the earth, right? Um, And to that end, there are now 23 by the Fort Hood's, you know, and this is where I think this conversation is so important, by Fort Hood officials own account, there have been 23 uh, dead soldiers um, in and around Fort Hood this year alone right i frankly many of us have lost count of the accounts of deaths and several of them are classified as suicides or accidents but the big question remains if the, if the department of defense continues to investigate itself if congress doesn't ask any real questions and is very comfortable with that system how are we to know that they are not concealing criminality by their own hand and you know many of us believe that um, this, this, the typical mechanisms and tropes of scapegoating, junior enlisted, scapegoating, you know just you know soldiers that don't know any better, um, this is just an occupational hazard. Um, these are all mechanisms to avoid uh, actual accountability and consequence from the people at the top who have allowed this to be uh, commonplace within our armed services. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that the attention on Vanessa Guillen has been really critical, um, not only on systemic changes, right? The, the fact of the matter is systemic racism and sexual violence is par for the course in military culture. It is a training tool from the second you step on these training footsteps all the way to through the VA and even to people's untimely or timely death. And so this is a bigger uh, problem that we must tackle. And the thing that is most glaring is why is it that those people that should be accountable to the troops, the hypocrisy of we support the troops so much, have done little to nothing um, for decades, right? Zero tolerance has actually not meant zero tolerance. Um, It has meant cover-ups and impunity. Correct me if I'm wrong, but
0: I I, I hate to get this wrong, but they found another soldier's body during the search another missing soldier i believe uh like not related at all to the case is what i believe i read because there's so many folks missing that we don't have accountability and you you make a really important point about this there's like a mythology about the military as i see it um some of its films some of its politics some of it's pretty nefarious you know the military is the most organized institution if you want you know, and competent at everything. If you want a problem solved, give it to the military, no matter what it is, right? You know, mm-hmm. if it's, if we needed to fix kindergarten teaching around America, there's a significant portion of this country that would say, send in the military. They'll do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yet in reality, Fort Hood, this, I believe, the second largest military installation in the Americas mm-hmm. uh, is, um, you know, is missing all these soldiers and the culture that you're mentioning of, race and patriarchy and just sexual violence and it's in reality what you have is a an off-the-rails institution that is given sort of adulation that's beyond what it deserves and i would i would ask you her, this case has brought up as you mentioned issues that have existed for so long and gotten them into the public eye again and maybe even more than previously do you what do you think the the context right time like temporal and also just uh, her individual case what is it that is bringing this to the fore now finally more not perfectly not enough but you know what's the what's the kind of perfect storm that we're seeing if you could put your finger on it
2: yeah I mean I think that we're in a crisis I don't think I know we all have seen for a while that this country is in a crisis of legitimacy and identity and especially in this year of a hurricane of crises right like we have a front row seat right uh to the deep corruption the hypocrisies the contradictions right of living in a pandemic but the government can't do you know or refuses to do little about it the political um willful ignorance around some of the most dastardly um you know systemic issues in our society whether that's state violence You know, whether that's the killing of black men in the streets by, you know, and rampant state violence or the fact that even if you serve in uniform as a brown person in America, it will not protect you. You are not protected. And so one thing that I think is really key that I've seen in my organizing throughout with this case in particular is the enormous hypocrisy of what does service actually mean in America. Right. Because if you don't, if you can't even keep troops safe, which there's this whole conversation around like, you know, are troops more special and more sacred than any other living person, you know, in our country. But if you can't even do that with the tropes and the hypocrisies of, we love the troops, we love the troops, we're we're gonna throw them in these endless wars, not serve them, and then keep them on these criminal decrepit fort, you know, um, bases with no accountability, I think that we have reached a fever pitch in this country. um, And I think that it is not an accident that the particularly Latino Latinx community has been out in droves. And the sentiments that I have heard most is um, we wanna serve this country, but it will not let us, whether that's in the military, whether that's as immigrants. And so there's something deeper with the Guillen case um, around this really terrible um, rupture moment. Um, I also think that we're in a moment where we are seeing a breakdown in politicians. I mean, it's Congress's job to have oversight of the military. And they, even with the glaring, I mean, the glaring gaps in the Guillen case, there's been lots of them who say, well, we're waiting on the army to self-investigate, literally when the army is not giving them, when anybody off the street can, can tell you that, there's a cover up, obviously, you know, in the mix here. And then I think lastly is, um, and I'm losing my chain of thought a little bit, sorry. It's been, it's been a heavy <laughs> few months of this case and this organizing, but um, I would say that lastly, I've never seen survivors take their power back like this before. Um, and one thing that has been different has been, you know, predominantly women have been ripping their wounds open and telling their, you know, they carried we trauma and suitcases and then whip them out for people to give a shit around the exploitation, you know, killings and death and abuse of soldiers um, and troops and everyday working people. Um, and finally, I think we're at a moment where um, Lots of people said no more. I'm not gonna really litigate with you if rape culture is military culture. It is. And your precious institution, right? Like there is a divide, I think, between those in the community, the military community who um, frankly profit. And you know, the valor parts of it is profitable and really is a great meal ticket. And they there's a there's a tension, I think, in the community around how dare you criticize the military. Um, and then survivors, people of color, women, the Guillen family for sure saying, actually it is the greatest betrayal to just have rose colored glasses and not call the question on the corruption of an institution that we know is the most trusted institution um, in American society. Um, this is irresponsible um, and we must you know, end and, and radically uh, transform. So um there's probably other things I'm missing um but but that comes to mind
0: yeah if I, I just I mean, I'm sorry honey I mean, just to jump in on that I some some of the things that you said really just resonated this question that we could probably do a whole pod on and you know we won't go too far on of like whether soldier lives matter more you know and uh I think that that's problematic right same thing with like police lives you know there's this idea that because there's bagpipes at the ceremony and the sound of taps is haunting, that somehow, you know, when, a, when a, a uniform member of society, any paramilitary, that they're somehow more valuable. But even if we leave aside the problematic natu- nature of, you know, em- emphasizing one life's value over another, there's, I think you point out the hypocrisy here of, we, we all adulate the soldiers and, and the politicians and the media and the people who profit off of it emphasize like how much I mean almost with a degree of almost insecurity it's like it's like they're making this a salve to like make themselves feel better somehow like they have to constantly laud the soldiers until it's hard right or until Mm -hmm. it's inconvenient until it goes against the political narrative and so yeah we love soldiers but endless war is fine uh, mm-hmm. We love soldiers, but rampant sexual abuse and assault across our military, including at our sacred cow military academies. And then we lie about it. And then there's no accountability for the staff fudging that went on there, you know, even when I was mm-hmm. teaching there. And 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 so I think, you know, we 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 adulate, it seems, and I think this is one of the things I, I'm hearing from you that's most interesting. It's like we adulate the myth of the military rather than its reality. So... The surface idea that it's just heroic and it's just a big, you know, walking American flag and everyone's equal and there's no color in the military because everyone knows that, you know, the military is the most unifying institution and it's perfect. Um, We we adulate the myth and then when, like, the dirty side and the real side and the underbelly is emphasized, it's funny how people polarize and a lot of the most patriotic pro-troops folks will sort of attack the character of people and you know victim blame and and just you know say oh how dare you make this a political football um but uh yeah that's just me pontificating but right? i think that's you know the things you're saying were just they're so important and they're not said enough
2: i mean the, the the other thing i would add is i mean this is a little bit also nerdy but um i think a lot about who's allowed to be fully um who's who's fully included right Vanessa Guillen's mother, uh, I, the words keep ringing in my ears because it's the same thing my mother has said. You know, my mother is the one who encouraged me to enlist because she wanted me to have college money and upward mobility, and Vanessa Guillen's mother Gloria said, um, "I gave this country the most precious thing. Um, I gave, you know, my daughter." And I think that. Um, I think a lot about how women, uh, you know, people of color, queer and trans people, um, you know, children of immigrants, first generation people in the military. I myself have experienced um, that it's actually never enough. You will always be questioned and undermined. Where are you truly, you know, liabil- uh, loyalties? Who are you actually allegiant to? Are you actually one of us? And it is this dynamic of American identity. Um, Really importantly, I have found it fascinating, but not surprising, how the Guillen case, whether it 's a congressional hearing or in the news, the narrative is um, you know this black soldier is at fault it's just junior enlisted people who don 't know any better it's just junior enlisted people that you know can't get it together and and there 's a deep classism and racism and xenophobia. Um, that will always and consistently rely on the other as the scapegoat for the military's problems. Because by from the inception, we were never supposed to be part of the institution. Um, we we're just tools, right, in the machine. And so um, it's been really interesting and I'm really actually curious to hear what you have to say, you know, uh, because what I find so, I mean, so fascinating is that the rot is at the top, right? This is all distraction by design to make us forget that like there have been like there have been people that have served for decades in higher ranking power positions that there's no way you don't know that this is, you know, um, not a problem. Like there's no I think one of the colonels was asked in a hearing, like, have you looked at any of the Vanessa Kian stories? You know the survivor stories online and his answer was i'm not on social media um and so it's fascinating to me the deference that high level commanders and generals are given um when they you you would think have supposedly the most authority and power to actually change the system
0: well yeah just yeah one last thing just to respond to what you're asking i'm or because you're you're provoking a lot of thoughts that are super important the military like often other paramilitary organizations such as the police are like the biggest crybabies ever you know they say we're snowflakes but if you question their like heroism competence or even just mythology it's like they they get really defensive it's fascinating but you know the generals do this where and and all officers and commanders they take so much pride That they are judge jury defense prosecutor you know in the administrative and even to some extent legal system within the military this commander driven thing um they take so much pride in that and how much power they have they brag to each other like the great thing about the military is i can handle problems myself you know Mm. We, we we say that i was a commander i mean i know these people um and yet even a general officer watch how quick when it's ugly they like wash their hands of it and say like well i don't know i don't control that you know it's not it's just like it, they have it both ways. But, um, but what you mentioned about whether you truly belong and like the way the culture operates, um, unspoken but also sometimes spoken, this idea of who's truly an American soldier. And I did find, and I don't love every aspect of uh, how I felt over the course of 20 years involved with the military in one way or the other, but I do know now, and I think I knew then, That there was a sense that the truest of true soldiers the real soldier is a white male infantryman scout tanker Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. um and and that that was there and so i'll just give you an example of what i mean um my own and I, i mean this is like confession time not cool don't like it hate myself for this i didn't speak up enough when i was a cadet about just the terrible pejoratives that were thrown around and the uh, the subculture among the male cadets of um, the female cadets are like problematic. And there was like all these slangs that were thrown around about them. Oh, they're not attractive enough or they're not as like, oh, they have such easy standards, you know, and I and and I was never like a, a loud guy about that kind of stuff. But I kind of like let it happen, you know, just awful, just that kind of enabling. And I think that like t- to some degree below the surface, because I had said to myself, like, well, I'm going to go do like, Combat arm stuff, and you know, go, you know, martyr myself for nothing. You know, I'm not going to worry about like interaction with like the female cadets. I was always polite. I was always nice. I was never like a mean guy, but I just didn't like make an effort really to like understand or make a whole lot of friends among the female cadets. And then I go out into the army where I don't really serve with females because you know just the type of units I was in at the time, especially. But I'll tell you what was a big change for me. I came back to teach at the academy in 2014. And I was like, it was like I was blown away, you know, because like I really, for the first time, like truly connected with my female cadets, and like talked to them offline and under, tried to understand and realizing what was going on. And like this enormous value that is brought to the military by all these different ways of thinking and types and diversities. And like, I don't know, because I'd been out in the wars and seen us fail with the old method. And that's not the good reason. That's not the main reason. There's an ethics to it. But even just from like a, a practical reason, like seeing like the white male, old militarism, just smash against complex societies and fail. I was like, Oh my God, I got this all wrong. And then of course, watching the sexual assault cases in some instances, several instances, my own students and following it and watching the fails, it really changed how I view it. And, and the reason I even tell the story is probably partly like Catholic penance, but also this notion that If we're honest with ourselves, I think a lot of, like, officers, enlisted guys, combat arms, all kinds of people will say, there is a subculture that you don't really belong unless you're this mythologized version of a soldier, and and that's a long answer to your question or or statement, but I think it's super important that we're self-aware about what's really going on, because if we don't say it and we don't admit it, then, like, what's the point? We're never going to get forward at, at all.
2: Mm -hmm. And beyond, you know, my thought is beyond the consciousness, because this consciousness is contrary to the ethos, right, to what you said. In my experience, when it's raised, like one of the most politicizing experiences I had in the military was I found it very interesting how uh, race, explicit racism and xenophobia, you know, I served as an intel analyst Um, you know, sitting around all day, watching the news, Fox News is on. um, And I had the experience often where working with, you know, security forces, um, the dehumanizing language of talking about people. And even in the times where, like, I was part of the whole hearts and minds, you know, pivot and whatever. And it was glaring to me how when we were talking about immigrants and, uh, you know, you know, local nationals, et cetera. Um, It was deeply jingoistic, racist, national, like ethno-nationalist almost language. And what was politicizing to me was, I remember very clearly um, some conversation erupted in the the office around uh, diversity. And I think I said something pretty simple around like, I believe in equity and diversity and like, you know, women, And I was reprimanded for being too political. Um, and so there is, I think, a warped sense of what is you know, commonplace and like, what is the actual culture of the military, right? Uh, if you treat women as they are intruders, as they are liabilities, right? I hear countless stories from women who served that you know, when, they were on, when they were in a hot situation on a deployment, men around them were just like, yeah, I'm not going to have your back because you can't have mine. Like, right. So like, this is deep. And I think it is so entangled in the institution's makeup that my question is consistently like, whose job is it to unfuck it? Whose job is it to like, stop letting this incredible, like forceful machine that has caused so much destruction? um, Who's who, where does the buck stop in terms of like, oh yeah, you know, uh soldiers going missing and dead um at an exorbitant rate rapes and murders and um you know and we're just talking the other thing that i think about a lot is we're just talking about people in uniform right like the fort hood deaths and and uh, and, and missing soldiers we're talking about soldiers and You, we all know on the, you know, we all know those of us that serve that soldiers don't stay on base all the time. They go off base, they go on college campuses. You know, if you're on a deployed location, civilians are in the mix. So there's a, there's even a broader, you know, damage pool that I think about a lot. Um, And to me, the constant question is Department of Defense defending what? And whose job is it to like course correct this mission? And is it even uh, an, a redeemable institution? Um, so I think that like th- this moment and the Guillen case in particular has kicked up a lot of questions because the other thing I'll remind is that Gloria Guillen, the mother, her demands are clear, shut down Fort Hood. She has said, we will not enlist our children if you don't get your shit together. And if you don't get justice from my daughter and if you don't fix the entire system. And she has, you know, understandably said, arrest these people. I think a lot about these commanders are still just hanging out on Fort Hood, like going to PT. I mean, I, 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 I think a lot about back to, you know, adulation of troops. I don't understand in what rational mind you can love the troops and be completely complicit and complacent about uh, the normalcy of our abuse and killings, whether in wars abroad or here um, on bases.
0: Henry, we've talked um, the, like I've talked the officers and the uh, commander side a little bit, but um, in response to, you know, what Pam is saying, what, I mean, what jumps out at you both from the, you know, NCO position and the, military police position but also just like your values like what's jumping at like how, how like because i think we all see these things differently and maybe have different answers to this question
1: my time in the army i um served alongside with female mps and i consider them to be my sisters you know i i i didn't see them um as weaker than me or less than me um they were right there doing the same things I was doing. It, it, for me, it was not even a question. But what I saw other men do, other NCOs, um, it was just abhorrent. It, you know that young, you know, junior enlisted females would be harassed or um, thought of as far less than a male soldier um at almost any turn it, it 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 didn't take it didn't take a lot to have that happen um and also there you know that especially for the mp corps there is a, a on the, the small side but a a strong core of female ncos and officers um and i remember a, a first sergeant um we had I think i just had a ceremony for soldier of the month um and apparently she she we were standing around you know getting a friday safety brief or something else and she screamed out at everybody okay who was the person that turned turned me into um uh crap i'm blanking on the name um i was gonna say internal affairs but the army doesn't have have that um It might have been equal opportunity, but I I can't remember exactly who the agency was. But anyways, so she she screams that in front of all whatever 130, 140 of us that someone had the gall to make a complaint somehow related to her. And they were just a fucking coward. You know, that there was there was there was no way to see around it. Um, I also saw uh, women being harassed. I I, my wife, my ex-wife told me horrible horrible stories about how she was treated by a specific NCO and I, as her, as her partner, I, you know, I wanted to go beat the absolute shit out of the guy, but that was not my, that was not my fight to have. Um, but it was, it was very hard to see her in so, so much pain from that. And from wondering what the army's social circles, how are they're going to treat her now? Um, she was working at the the local MP station, and their little crews there—they're the ones that run the radios and take uh, nine-one-one calls and stuff like that. They're they're very very insular, um, no different than infantry squads or or cap scouts or other other things like that. Um, but it was clear that there was two sets of rules, or or maybe even more that that. You know the the men could immediately say you know this this woman is is nothing she's not a good soldier she's a she's a bitch or a slut Um, and and immediately it just it changes the whole demeanor of how she's treated you know we 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 live as units we deploy as units and those things aren't forgotten Um, and soldiers want to move up they don't want to create problems they don't want to create waves but mainly is that they don't see this problem as them not standing up for fellow soldiers. They are able to detach themselves far enough from it that it's not their problem, and it very much is their problem. It's their problem to protect people, that NCOs are tasked with two two things, the accomplishment of the mission and welfare of the soldiers. And sometimes the mission, sometimes number one, is indeed number two. Taking care of soldiers is the mission. And this is a case, like many others, where that absolutely has not happened. The guys and I love doing the podcast. Being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us. But we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with someone, anyone, whom you like might think might be affected by it. Young people looking to join the military or parents advocating for one, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name, advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military creates for females and minorities and inflicts on minorities around the globe, and anyone else you think it might affect, please take a moment pause the episode, share this with them. Now, our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to, uh, to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out these honorary producers. And they are Will Arends, Fahim Shirazi, James Zobar, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Emma P., Janet Hansen, Lawrence Taylor, Tristan Oliver, Marwan Marwan, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style... You can always contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash for Hill. or please check out our store on spreadshirt.com. Make sure you check for promo codes before you order. And now let's get back to the podcast.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. I think also, I agree
1: inspector general. General. That's what I meant.
0: right. IG. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I a hundred percent agree that if, if we're going to have a commander's driven system, which I don't think we should, by the way, on certain cases, which we'll get to, but if we're going to have it, then you have to own it. And we've all seen, right. All three of us, I think I know have seen how fast a unit can turn on a dime and, and accomplish a mission when it's, when it's important or when they think it's important or they think their boss thinks it's important. Right. I mean, stamp out cold you know just make it happen nobody sleeps right we do this for the most mundane things like a powerpoint briefing that gets scheduled the last second and we've done it for big issues too and i mean imperfectly but i mean just one example uh don't ask don't tell was getting ready to go away while i was in command and you know the five of us would have lunch together like once a week you know And, you know, I was the communist and they were real Americans and we would argue all the time, but we were buddies, right? We drank beers together. We got along just fine. And we would argue about, you know, gays in the military all the time. And that has obviously been completely imperfect and it's not like a perfect transition. But they argued to me throughout that year, this is going to take the military down. If you, you know, it's the same arguments that were made about letting women in, about letting... African-Americans saying like, it's going to destroy camaraderie, but this will be even worse because it's not just race or gender. It's like the, you know, sexuality. And so somehow it's going to destroy morale. Actually, we're going to lose the war on terror, which has already been lost by doing this. Like this was essentially how far the argument would go. And I would always say the same thing. I would say, I will bet you everything that I have that this is going to go off, not without a hitch in terms of it's, or it's, I'm sure an incredibly difficult experience still, of course, to be, uh, You know, gay, trans, anything in the military. So I'm not taking away from that. But in terms of the fact that it will happen, units will still accomplish their missions. I said, this is going to go off without a hitch. This is going to be, nothing's going to, like, it's going to be fine. And they were like, yeah, right. And of course, time and again, if you have to do something, or you think you do, or or commanders make it a priority, it can happen. So we're not deploying hundreds of thousands of soldiers overseas anymore. Not that that would be an excuse. There is like there is the ability to make this the priority. If the general officers wanted it to be, if the civilian officials of the Pentagon wanted it to be, and if individual captains, lieutenants, and sergeants wanted it to be, it could be. Uh, but, of course, I think the caveat, and then I'll let us, like, you know, let Pam transition us or you, Henry, but, like, the caveat is, of course, that, like, I do think that the commander-driven system for much of this is inherently flawed uh and has failed right and and therefore so i'm not lauding that system which i think is worth talking about and i think needs to go in certain cases uh and is archaic by the way and like uh undemocratic and a whole bunch of like problematic things like but it's uh and maybe unconstitutional but it's if we're gonna have that system, then like we need to own it. And like it's on officers, non-commissioned officers and certainly general officers to make it a priority, but they really don't accept saying the right thing and putting a blurb on a PowerPoint slide most of the time.
2: Yeah, I mean, for me, it comes back down to, I think a lot, I've been thinking a lot about military culture and how for us like sayings and um, different sayings I think about them now and I'm like, why did I not think that was fucked up, you know? Um, and the two, the the one that comes up for me is shut up in color, shut up in color. It's the, it's one of the things I heard most in the military. And I think a lot about, I mean, to your point, what, what would be required is that whistleblowing and critical thinking not be punished in service. But as we all know, I mean, I'll speak for myself as, you know, someone who left as an NCO, I also went up for a commission twice. um, And I was told, you know, at the very end of my career, I went up for a commission. It was between myself and another colleague, uh, a white man. And both of us were asked by this all-male board uh, the question, when you become a commissioned officer of the Air Force, what would be your top systematic, you know, policy priority, which is a weird question. Um, And he said, I would make sure that physical fitness standards would be more rigorously met. (laughs) And I said um, I would work to eradicate sexual harassment and assault in the Air Force. Mind you, we had just had a couple of pilots uh, looking at porn in the tactics room. Um, So that felt like a timely answer. And instead what happened was I was pulled aside. They they asked a female um, intel colonel uh, to pull me aside and ask me if I was okay um, and treat me with suspicion and you know goes to say I did not get the commission. And so one of my biggest learn, lessons learned from the military uh, and when I was enlisted active duty I also filed an IG complaint and I often joke that I started organizing in the military. Um, but you know the military is, is, is exceptional hierarchy the power dynamics. I keep having to remind people like, this isn't a regular workplace. You don't have rights. And so even when I see, whether it's a lowly, you know, uh, officer or NCO trying to protect their troops, or even like Captain Crozier, right? On the Roosevelt, trying to protect his people. There is, I believe, a mandate of punishment for anyone that dissents or speaks out or does try to do the right thing. And I think that as an institution, we are lost because one thing that I keep thinking about and can't forget is that our current highest ranking officer in the Department of Defense, Mark Milley, was the former commander of Fort Hood at the height of its criminality, at the height of its sexual assaults and deaths. Right when there was a mass shooting on that base, but that's but you know that's the guy that we decided was going to be the best person for that job. So there's a part of me that thinks that there is never an opportunity. Like, can senior officers ever do wrong? And my answer is no. The entire system is set up to protect them because our mandate is. Um, difficult, you know, like the military has a very specific job um, to do. And we haven't reconciled, I think, as a society around the the deep failures of how that continues to make everyday soldiers who are largely working people, whether you're an officer or lowly enlisted, right, you're not being paid. Uh, I know that we have, there's these jokes about like, you know, the young E3 who like goes and gets, you know, a big car. But like, these are people are being paid poverty wages <laughs> to take abuse, um, and I think a lot about the labor economics uh, of, of the dynamics in the military.
1: And also included with that is the uh, lack of, or at least scarce, environmental regulations that allow mm-hmm. um, things like the uh, PFAS contamination of so many bases around the country and. It should be an outrage. It should be something that people are up in arms about greatly. How could our wonderful troops get poisoned while they're trying to protect America? But it's not seen that way. It doesn't, you know, the, the mythos crushes those kinds of, uh, those kinds of ideas. So I'd, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to turn a little bit to the law enforcement perspective on this and, uh, Uh, You know, these are just just thoughts and ideas I've had since um, researching about what happened to Vanessa and the larger systemic issues um, around uh, military sexual trauma. Um, I want to point a couple things out before I I first get into it. First, I'm, I'm, I'm presuming that both Vanessa's chain of command and the Fort Hood CID or the MPs there believed that she was truly AWOL. Not missing or in danger of some kind now i 'm not saying that 's an acceptable decision. I flat out refute that that notion at all, but if that is the logic, then some of their steps can seem if not acceptable a tiny bit more understandable um, and following that idea, if she was truly seen as a wall. That means that the CID and the MPs failed to do a proper initial investigation in and near the sites where, where she was last seen including canvassing you know doing field interviews asking everybody what they saw where they worked that day all, all those kind of, of basic things to give the investigators a, a picture um, that also means that the focus of the investigation never pointed to uh, the subject specialist Robinson until the phone records requested by law enforcement placed him and his girlfriend uh, near the Leon River where Vanessa's remains were found. Um, and these like I said, these these initial statements, initial interviews, are so paramount to an investigation because they create the parameters for how they're going to move forward, looking through statements for names of people to interview, dates, times. Um, and just, just while I'm thinking about it, you know, the surveillance... Uh, the surveillance conditions on most military bases. I remember working a a murder case in 2006 with CID. I was on the drug team, but it was kind of all hands on deck. And one of my jobs was to go to the MP station and sit in front of their computer that managed all of the camera feeds for the post. And I don't know exactly who or what circumstances made it so they said that that military posts have poor surveillance or they're not able to pull the tapes or anything like that but they should and if they don't if fort hood doesn't because i i was at fort lewis for six years and like i said this kind of stuff was was tracked um so moving on to a little more specifics here why didn't her leaving her personal items behind in the arms room strike a bell with anyone whether law enforcement or in her chain of command um what did her actual squad leader section leader it sergeant in charge of her actually do when he found out that she was missing i'm assuming it's a he but i I, it could be a a a female as well um did anyone did any investigator did any mp actually sit with all these people when she vanished and and asked those questions um so you have that, that um, the NCO, whoever it was, NCO or officer who called the MPs, you have the armorer, the subject of the investigation, the person who we believe uh, killed her, who told everybody that she left behind her wallet and her room key, which are ordinary human things that we don't leave behind. Um, when you live in the barracks, sometimes the only thing you carry around with you, other than maybe your wallet, is your barracks room key. It's your house. It's where you live. Why in the world would it be randomly left behind if that person went on AWOL? Um, Did any of these NCOs or officers physically go to the arms room where she was last seen to get Vanessa's personal effects or check the arms room to ensure all was well? Um, At this point, and, and this is a bit morbid, but I think it's very important, it was a crime scene and must have had the strong smell of blood, which is despite all the many odors of a small confined room filled with guns and tools to fix guns. The smell of blood would have been noticeable, if not unavoidable as would have been the visual evidence of her death. And talking about the arms for a minute, I want to use that as a little bit of a microcosm to describe how female troops live in the military in the army. And I assume the Marines and air force, everybody else does it pretty similar Uh, arms rooms or armories are usually located in basements or other detached locations. Unless soldiers are drawing weapons for training or maintenance, most of them won't visit these areas as part of the normal jobs. Their seclusion makes them ideal places to harass or corner someone with no one in range to eject or even bear witness to how soldiers who work there are treated, unless leaders regularly go down there and check things out. If Vanessa's supervisors had possibly taken more time to visit her actual workspace instead of simply believing everything was okay, her killer would have been forced to be much more cautious with his treatment of her. So we have this this failure to do a basic initial investigation. That's my standing on this right now is they did not do their fucking jobs They didn't go to the arms room. They didn't conduct subject interview of Robinson as the last person who saw Vanessa. There was significant delays in interviewing vital witnesses, which gave Specialist Robinson and his girlfriend the chance to perfect their alibis for when they finally did have questions that they could not easily answer. The phone records that ultimately sent officers to Vanessa's remains near the Leon River were obtained long after they should have been, especially once Specialist Robinson's girlfriend was shown to be lying in her initial interviews. Then, if it wasn't bad enough, once the ID found the actual burn site, which had tough, uh, tough box remains, hold on one second. A tough box being a uh, a large, kind of rubber-made container, but they're very tough, and we use them to carry equipment, extra uniforms and stuff on deployments. Or it can carry whatever, it's just that uh, they're very common in uh, among soldiers. Once CID actually found the burn site, which had remains from the tough box, they should have treated it as an active crime scene. That means that Vanessa's remains were able to deteriorate and the crime scene unsecured for another nine days before CID actually found them. And finally, they allow a murder subject to remain only confined to his barracks, but otherwise unsupervised. And, I, you know, they may have had a fleet of guys watching him, I don't know, but I would assume it was less than two or less and he was able to sneak away. I'm of the opinion that they should have apprehended him over what CID chose to do, which to do some, uh, something called a controlled phone call. And it's essentially where... Um, two people involved in a case contact each other and on one side, the person doing the calling, the investigators are listening. It's an attempt to, to get a confession. And I feel like that that was, they chose to do that over immediately apprehending him and he fleed and he killed himself. Law enforcement can be super confession hungry and it, 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 it goes beyond needing actual proof in a, um, in a law enforcement investigation. Now, some of this stuff may be cleared up by further uh, further investigative work or through FOIA requests, something I'm going to do about this, this case. Um, the notes that I've compiled here are from an FBI agent's summary of the events through Robinson's death, but the basic timeline makes no sense whatsoever. There are also character questions. Who among Vanessa's unit and COs and officers gave info about Vanessa's character and or was asked about whether her disappearance was something in line with going AWOL? Uh, Danny, I know you've experienced this. Troops often do really dumb things, and they also give signs, usually when they're going to do that or they're going to go AWOL. Not always, but sometimes. Um, both Vanessa's boyfriend and her sister spoke to her the day she disappeared. Where are all these people? People's written statements being asked those questions. Her mom, her sister, her boyfriend, people that she knew. There should be a stack of them. And uh, we've talked. With, I believe we've talked a little bit today about about credibility. You know, who in the military gets to decide who is and who isn't seen as credible? Who gets to decide that Vanessa's sexual harassment? wasn't real or didn't happen because no one in a uniform corroborated it. Um, Why isn't her family statements given the weight of a soldier or an officer? Now, the UCMJ has provisions that give extra weight to a soldier's ostensibly positive service when they're accused of a crime. Their quote-unquote honorable service stands in solidarity with their defense against criminal charges. Why isn't venice's family and the people close to her given that same level of credibility
0: i'll let i'll let you guys jump yeah in. Uh, well pam you go ahead first
2: and um yeah uh gloria guillen gave a speech in dc that like has kept me up um at night um she's very i can't emphasize it enough the language and justice barriers here are uh, enormous, and she has been very, very clear. Um, she talks about the disrespect that she experienced uh, from Fort Hood officials, from CID, um, from even Vanessa Guillen's chain of command. And it's very clear to me, you know, as someone who, you know, the government's been a lot of money training on, on being uh, you know, analytical. It's very clear to me that this is not just an aggrieved mother, but someone who has a deep understanding of uh, corruption. Um, one thing that I would also point out that I think has gotten really lost is um, the 3rd Cav Regiment, the 3rd Cavalry Regiment that Vanessa Guillen fell under. If you Google it um, on the Fort Hood website, the page has been sanitized and scrubbed. Um, you know, Vanessa Guillen's regimental commander, um, Colonel Ralph Overland, before he was the commander of the third CAV of Vanessa Guillen's um, chain, uh, he was an executive officer on the army staff for the current secretary of the army, Ryan McCarthy, who was appointed by this administration. Um, And that secretary of the army who ordered a air quotes review of Fort Hood's sexual harassment and assault prevention program, um, they themselves admitted in um, a congressional hearing that they did not look at Vanessa Guillen's unit. And so um, what all, I mean, these are facts, right? This isn't a conspiracy. These are open source things that anyone can research and look at themselves. And I think what is most glaring to me is that we, as the American public, I believe because of ignorance of the military, but also because of a cultural deference um, and blind trust, um, are are kind of comfortable with the lack of answers. But more damning and more enraging to me is that politicians, um, you know, whose literal job it is to oversee this, they who have the power to ask questions have not. So one big question I have is, if I was a sitting Congressperson, you better believe that I would have dragged this guy into, you know, a hearing room and questioned him publicly. But it's interesting to me all of the excuses that are put out, you know, whether it's the pandemic or it's just too hard, or, you know, there's just a litany of excuses that are always made. Um, and you would think that, um, you know, you would think that military leadership responsible for, with such a high caliber of responsibility, would be held to account in a meaningful way. Um, And so again, like, it didn't take me long to put these pieces together by just doing my due diligence. And I think what keeps us from doing due diligence is um, a real big comfort with just blindly trusting um, high-ranking DOD officials um, and the military. I
0: think that's a great Point. And you said earlier, and I really did mean to respond to it, um, a system that instead of for all our talk about like, you know, mission first, soldiers always, you know, take care of the troops, these platitudes, uh, in my experience, and I think that there is uh, empirical and demonstrable evidence, uh, perhaps anecdotal, but instructive enough that the system is designed to protect career officers, especially career officers who have connection uh, connections, right, to the powerful, right? And it's a sycophant it, it, system of promotion. The generals choose their own. That's a unique and interesting factor, right? It is a group of generals who choose the next crop of generals, right, which uh, affects change in a tactical and sort of, you know, visionary strategic sense, but also affects change in terms of culture. Uh, which can be more toxic. And so you look at, if you look at a lot of these cases, it does seem that follow the careers. And and in other words, folks like us who have the inside baseball a little bit know how to do that quickly. You know, you look up the guy's bio, you see what did he do last, and you say, oh, wait, who commanded the thing that he worked in last? And you kind of piece together in, you know, 20 minutes of like a Wikipedia spiral or, you know, a dot mill spiral, and you kind of figure out who's protected. And and my experience was that in the army, uh, and you talked about the war on dissent and the war on even asking questions or being skeptical that you saw and like, you know, who gets promoted and who doesn't, who gets the commission and who doesn't. Um, I found that incompetence and toxic leadership rarely was the thing that would get you in trouble, fired or not promoted. Rather... If you look at the things that tend to... In other words, there are colonels... I've worked for one of them. There are colonels and generals out there who got soldiers killed literally for careerist reasons. I mean, obscene stuff. And this is not like fantasy. But those guys, they move on and they lead the next war. And I've seen people who are toxic, toxic leaders. I mean, terrible, like kind of racist, definitely chauvinist, you know, uh, or just, just... And just cruel, but what'll get you in trouble is if you embarrass the military so Mm -hmm. if your character flaw which has been hidden for 25 years somehow hidden right open secret uh gets into the news breaks into the media or if you start to question the war or the tactics or anything really or the culture and you embarrass the military that's the cardinal sin that's the cardinal sin that will end your career uh and, and so it's like we don't focus on the important things but I think when you're what you're mentioning about this you know the colonel uh, in charge and who did he work for and you know working for the secretary of the army I mean these systems are not designed to hold folks accountable mm-hmm. uh and so the it's an inverted system but why should that surprise us when the military itself looks like America's caste system and I would see a S T E right uh, it looks like america's caste system sort of on steroids i mean in a in a very public way i mean look at like the racial component of officers versus enlisted of the combat arms versus the non-combat arms of mm-hmm. you know of class and i mean it's it's really it's like a microscope in a way on american society except it's like heightened by the you know mission being so dangerous and public and all this but yeah i think that that's an important point and and, and henry you know um I, you had asked about the commander's perspective, and I'll be brief about it because I think we've covered most of it. But I looked at the case, I read it, and, and, and just even the open source reporting, all I kept thinking was this, the officers in her chain of command, and I'll only speak to my own experience, uh, were criminally negligent. Mm-hmm. And they were criminally immoral in their negligence because I saw no prioritization. I saw no urgency. Uh, this was not the most this, – this, this human being, soldier, person, citizen under their command, being missing was clearly not the top priority for that unit. Oh, well, why was that? Well, they grew up – some of it's just there could have been some bad people, but let's assume the best about everybody. They grew up in a culture where their progression, their success was not going to be judged positively. Like that was not what was going to be positively reinforced. They probably spent more time getting ready for, you know, USR slides, or in other words, like logistical mundane, right? The banal of like the military bureaucracy. They probably spent a lot more time on that kind of stuff than this case. And and so I found as an officer, and I think it's true for an occupation officer or just a human being, that usually you can tell a lot about a person by like which way they break, like picturing a wave. like you know, nothing's binary, nothing's completely a dichotomy, but when something crisis-like happens, when something like this happens, which direction are they going to break in? Are they going to break in the direction of, like, decency, concern, you know, Mm -hmm. let's benefit of the doubt, like, even if maybe it's possible that she's AWOL, like, we have to treat this like it's not. I mean, even if there weren't so much evidence that she wasn't AWOL, you know, which way do you break? And to me, I think my last point is this chain of command did not break in the direction of decency. Instead, They did what the military culture has trained them to do, which is to break in the direction of being company men, company men. Mm -hmm. Right. And that is people die behind that. And I think that this is a perfect case.
2: Yeah. I mean, what, uh, I just, if I could add a few things, I know we're over, um, please, please. (laughs) I mean, the reason that this, um, so a couple of things, I think for me, one of my biggest, uh, you know, One of the things that the rage motivation that I feel in doing this work is I hear my own experience, but I hear time after time, right? I mean, all of us have different military experiences, um, but at the core of it, what I hear from a lot of people is, I did want to serve something bigger than myself. I did want to serve people and I was lied to, or I was set up for failure, or I have a complicated experience because it didn't pan out to, to be able to do that in a meaningful way. And I think um, I feel energized, frankly, by the reality of countless people across the country, whether you know, inspired by Gloria Guillen or military vets themselves, who are like, "Yeah, we're going to organize because you shouldn't take my life in vain. I'm not just government property, right?" And like the the, the expendability of people in military uniform. Is also a sickness of this country, right? So that's something that I think about a lot. Um, the other piece I was going to say is, I think every day about how more than ever it is critical for us to. I mean, uh, so let me just say two things. One thi- one of the things that has also activated uh, predominantly, you know, women veterans and service women to activate, you know. Uh, around the Vanessa Guillen issue is where are the veteran service organizations, right? You don't see the Guillen family flanked by, you know, officer associations and, you know, VSOs, traditional VSOs, even some of these, you know, political organizations that claim to really, you know, be doing great by vets. And so one thing that really stands out is how alone this family is, mostly surrounded by other Latinos and people of color, right? Um, And the last thing that I'll say is that I think it's never been more important to activate the dissent muscle within the military and veteran community. We have a commander in chief who literally just a few months ago tried to use the military against our own civilians, right? There's no question in my mind that he is trying to consolidate the military as his own. And I think that military and, and veteran folks, we have a choice to make we either are going to allow ourselves to remain colonized by this blind allegiance to an institution that let's be real like didn't hasn't been the most pristine hasn't done right by all of us no matter even the best memories or nostalgia that we might have and you know the tough question around our own sacrifice um or we go along with a pretty corrosive and corrupt trend right um, and so my final thing is Vanessa Guillen is just the canary in the coal mine because if Congress can't even do their fucking job in actually investigating what is clearly uh, an incident rife of corruption and a military base that should be shut down, frankly, right? This many, like literally a few days ago, there was another dead soldier found at, a, at the same lake that she was found. Um, if Congress can't even keep us safe, you know, Uh, and do the right thing here, what makes us think that the sliding authoritarianism and the further corruption of the military that expands beyond just sexual violence is gonna be something that can be checked?
0: 100, yeah, 100%. I was, when you just said that about where the hell is the American Legion and the VFW and any of these veterans organizations, it actually made my stomach hurt for a second thinking about that thinking about who stands up with for and with who and who doesn't and what that says about like a society and uh it's gross it's obscene and i agree with you about activating this like the dissent within the military and there is a tradition it's always been the minority but there has always been a tradition of dissent within the military. really important dissent and like it it really is a time for choosing i think and i think that this you know this human tragedy is just one of uh, many but it's important and it's like one that we really need to rally around and like it is a litmus test for decency in a way where are you going to come down of course everybody but as an officer as a soldier as a veteran where do you, you know where are you on this and I, and I think we we have to watch it and um you know, I know we're about to close out, and I actually have to run on to another call, as always. That's my birthday, and I've overscheduled. That's fun. But I, I was thinking about the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment, Pam, and what you had said about, like, for, like the former commanders and stuff and who they worked for. Mm-hmm. And then I just went on this little spiral on my laptop, and I started thinking about – I remember I was an armor officer, even though I was cab. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, back when the 3rd Armored Cavalry was before it became a striker unit, it was the top command the best armor officer in his gear group, the guy who was most highly thought of commanded that unit. And it speaks to, I think, this protection of the officers. And I know I'm digressing a little bit, but I think it's worth noting. I mean, who has commanded the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment, the 3rd Cavalry Regiment in the past? I mean, you have heard of some of these names, listeners, like H.R. McMaster, mm-hmm. right? Martin Dempsey. Mm-hmm. I mean... The, if you are an armor officer and you rise to four-star general status, you may well, very likely, have commanded the 3rd the third Cavalry Regiment. And so I think that raises questions about who do we protect, whose lives value, what's more important, a life and a future life? Because there will be more. We, Like you said, there already have been. There will be more. Uh, or these, like, very highly lauded and adulated careers and these climbers, you know? Uh, i think that's a really important point with that yeah I'll, I'll turn it over to you guys and and uh this is yeah this is such an important conversation god I'm glad we did this
1: pam thank you uh thank you so much for coming to to chat with us about this um will you please let the listeners know um where they can find your work and, and keep track of what you're up to
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I'm uh, on Twitter, underscore Pam Campos. I am excited to lead um, a a project called Vets for the People, um, so you can find us on social media. And uh, I'm committed. Um, I'm committed with Vets for the People and working with others to shut down Fort Hood. Um, And so I invite anyone listening that wants to get in the fight um, uh, to reach out, um, because I think that it is our duty to not just Um, change the cycle, but to do right by this family
1: um, that needs us so much. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, patreon spotify you name it almost anywhere you listen we're already waiting for you and hey we're always in the market for more patreon supporters please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com and if you're not into giving us a monthly payment think about giving us a couple bucks on paypal the link is in the show notes skepticism is one's best armor never forget it we'll see you next time and let my song, I hope you'll pay attention. I will not be. De-